and welcome to this Edible Norwich Walking Tour podcast. This is a number of podcasts that we're producing for Heritage Open Days from Norfolk Heritage Centre at the Millennium Library in Norwich. My name's Rachel and I am Community Librarian for Local Studies at Norfolk Heritage Centre and I will be walking you through this tour today with my colleague Chris Tracy. Hello there, uh, my name's Chris and I'm the Archive Specialist uh, working on behalf of Norfolk Record Office in the Norfolk Heritage Centre and um, yeah this should be fun we've uh, already uh, sort of done the route haven't we a few days ago at the weekend we Rachel and um, we came across some uh, wonderful things and some wonderful people actually which, which you'll be hearing more about in a moment or two. We did so this walk will probably take around an hour and a half and uh, maybe longer maybe shorter depending on your pace um, and we'll talk you through the route in detail so you know exactly where to go and what to see on your way. And what we'll do as well is on our podcast blog, we'll upload photographs of the route and also some historic images from our collections here at the Heritage Centre. And this should hopefully paint a picture of the history of Coleman's mustard in the in the city centre, which is what we're going to be talking about today, the Coleman's family and the production of Coleman's mustard. Um, and it should be fun. We really enjoyed it, didn't we, Chris, when we, we, we did this walk on Saturday? We did. We were fortunate enough to have fine weather and uh, we, didn't, we didn't go too, too quickly because we were sort of uh, feeling our way forward a little bit, weren't we? Sort of, um, we, we had one or two sort of uh, cul-de-sacs and sort of false starts and uh, strange uh, dead ends and what have you. But um, yeah, it's, it's actually an enjoyable walk um, with lots of interesting things on the way. So um, yeah, let's, let's get started. Let's kick and, off. Um, so we, we decided to start um, at Trouse, Trouse Common. So uh, you're able, as, as Rachel I think possibly mentioned, you know, you could in theory do this, do this walk um, in, in reverse. You could start in the city centre, but uh, we're going to start um, at Trouse. Um, and Trouse has a very important place in the history of Coleman's Mustard. Coleman's, as I'm sure many people will, will know, many people have a, a vague knowledge and understanding of Coleman's even if they don't know the history of the company and its association with Norwich in depth because it really was an extraordinary success story and had a huge impact on the Norwich on, on Norwich as a city the, the civic life uh, the life life of its citizens um, as well as being you know a very very successful business with a huge um, national and indeed international um, impact um, and I suppose starting at Trous is, is, is a good idea because in a way um, the impact of, of, of Coleman's can be seen um, to its greatest extent there. Trous itself has a long history. Um, it's approximately um, two kilometres southeast of the city of Norwich. Um, and as I say, um, Trous, as, as, as we can see it today, um, really is um, as a result of, of the Coleman's, Coleman family and their, and their success um, in as much as they transformed it effectively into um, one of the model villages that became uh, well known in the, in the mid to late 19th century um, insofar as uh, successful industrialists of that age with a social conscience um, wanted to look after their employees and therefore built housing and uh, civic and, and public um, rooms for them. So we'll discuss that in a, in a bit more detail. Um, but as I say, Trous, um, very historic village. Um, the earliest surviving reference to the village uh, is from the Saxon period. It's been known uh, at various times as Trous or Truce or Trusa. 
Um, the Manor of Newton, um, because the, the, the correct official name is for the village is Trous Newton or Trous with Newton. Uh, the Manor of Newton was originally larger than that of Trous, um, but the name Trous itself apparently said to derive, Rachel, from the Saxon term for treehouse. Oh, Did you know? oh that's so interesting. That's, yeah, 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 I didn't know that. Well, that might explain, actually, the Trous village sign which is a tree with a structure at the top of it. We were pondering that. We were pondering It's only that. just occurred to us. So that, that does make a lot of sense now, doesn't it? And I'll just say at this point as well, we're starting at Trouse Common, so it might be a good, good time to grab yourself a coffee from one of the cafes overlooking Trouse Common and find a bench and listen to um, Chris's description of, of Trouse. Um, yeah, so Saxon um, is earliest surviving reference to the village from the Saxon period. Um, Bishop Stigard, he owned the whole of Newton and part of Trous, apparently. So there you are. In 1205, the lands were then handed back to the, uh, well, were handed over to the Cathedral Priory of Norwich, which was, as I'm sure many of you will know, a Norman, uh, Norman foundation. Uh, Trous Newton Hall uh, was built by the priors as their country retri- retreat, um, and apparently, 1335, King Edward III and Queen Philippa lodged there. But anyway, our story, get back to the Colmans, I hear you cry. Um, <laughs> so yeah, 1870s really um, is when the story begins for Trous and the Colmans. Um, the Colmans, of course, um, had already become very successful um, by this point. Um, old Jeremiah Coleman um, had originally uh, been a, a, a general miller. I believe he was from Balbra, is that right? Really? He was, yeah. He was originally from Balbra. Um, and but you'll see that on on sort of any jar of Coleman's mustard it says established 1814 but that's not quite the beginning of his story he did that's the year that he started leasing a mill at Stoke Holy Cross which is just south of Norwich but prior to that he had actually moved into Norwich from Balborough which is where he was already making mustard and he bought a windmill just outside Magdalen Gates in an area known as Pockthorpe so he was already already making mustard before the sort of official establishment of uh, of Coleman's in 1814. Absolutely, and by the mid 19th century, um, proven the family had proven themselves as very astute business people. Um, Coleman's had become well established, uh, had had thousands of employees uh, by this point. Really had made the mark on the city, and at this point, I believe it was 1856, um, they moved to Carrow. I believe uh, that the move. Um, from, Car- uh, from Stoke Holy Cross um, to, Car- to Carrow sort of uh, took place over quite a period, possibly 10 to 12 years from about 1850, 1852-ish. Uh, the, the Carrow Works um, site being a lot more um, suitable for a, a more modern uh, business, obviously having the, the railway line as the uh, sort of transport links in that regard and close to the river, um, of course, as well as being um, a very... Um, uh, convenient place to um, for, for to make use of local labour, as I'm sure many of you are aware. Um, up until for, for many centuries, Norwich had uh, relied on its sort of textiles and weaving industries and what have you. But these had declined quite seriously by this point. So there are a lot of people looking for jobs, um, and the Colmans were were able to step in and uh, and provide provide employment. Which brings us back to Trous. I hope as you're listening, you're simply having a good mooch around of Trous and. If, if not in reality, then in your mind, because it is a, it's a beautiful site, isn't it, Rachel? It is lovely, and we did this on Saturday. Mm. We, had, we just had a little mooch around. We went to the Dell, 
um, which is just to the left of, of, or just to the right, sorry, of the coffee shop, um, and also Russell Terrace, which um, was named after one of the Coleman family. We'll come on to talk a little bit about that later. But as you just wander around Trout, you just see the Coleman's reflected absolutely everywhere, don't you? Absolutely. So um, in the middle of the col- uh, in the middle of the middle of the common, you've got the common. Um, if you're sort of facing towards Russell Terrace, which is the line of um, the distinctive line of terrace houses, it's four four blocks, which are distinct um, of, of houses. Um, but they very much combine um, to make a whole. They've been described somewhere um, as, as the glory of Trous, um, architecturally. Um, re- they, they, you know, they, although they are obviously now all individually um, owned, and they're not owned by, by Coleman's, um, so they all do have their distinctive features, people put their distinctive mark on them, they still do retain that character almost of a, as a, a kind of a, on a more sort of modest or humble scale a kind of you know one of those sort of promenades or um, you know sort of uh, parades you know as if in uh, Brighton or Bath on a, on a very much sort of obviously more um, subdued um, scale but they're all in local red brick as a, as are all, all the, um, the houses and the model village buildings built by the Coleman's. Um, Rachel mentioned the Dell, the Dell, the houses in the Dell were. Were some of the other houses that were built um, for employees. I believe the Dell was um, specifically for sort of older ex-employees. Is that is that correct, Rachel? Yeah, there's some lovely photos actually that, that Chris has found that we've put onto the website of old folk at the Dell um, with Nurse Ogleman, um, and yeah, these these slightly dour-looking ladies dressed all in black sat outside their their little bungalow cottage. Um, yeah, and that, that just kind of gives you a hint at um, the care of, of the Coleman's for, for elderly and more vulnerable members of society. It, it was something that they, they thought about. Absolutely. So, as I say, the Coleman's, um, the move to Caro, 1850s, um, and then in 1872, the Coleman's bought the Crown Point Estate, the nearby Crown Point Estate, um, which, which sort of encompasses um, the area. And uh, this really is, as I say, 1870s when the, the real um, sort of building of the, of the model building, uh, model village buildings uh, commences. So as well as the uh, residential um, uh, buildings, there were public buildings. So that in, uh, incorporates the school and that's the last surviving um, sort of uh, public uh, building built at this time uh, by the Coleman's. Um, very much adds to the distinctive char- uh, character of this part of the village nearby to, to Russell uh, Russell Terrace, it's sort of built as a sort of a two um, two tier kind of uh, playground. Um, but you can clearly see the sort of front um, of, the, of the school at a distance. And then if you go up, um, is is it the dell you go up to, to sort of see the side of the yeah? Side of the so if you if you're facing the school just to the right of it, if you head up that way, it's the dell, um, and it doesn't look much as it did it's a sort of fairly modern redevelopment but it, I think it is still um, social housing so it still kind of retains its its original purpose but the school is lovely it's it's really hardly changed has it uh, from the outside um, it still really looks much as it did um, when it was first built yeah and that goes for the entire village really I mean a lot of it is down to the re- uh, retention of um, original features. So, with regard to the school, you've got the railings, which are original railings for the most part. Um, 
So the school was built in 1870, and it was originally part of a congregational chapel which stood immediately um, east of Chapel Terrace. Um, unfortunately, a number of years ago that was, um, that was demolished, but the school um, is, is of course still standing, uh, as we say, retaining that, that character. Um, sort of generally felt to be a sort of a Jacobean kind of um, design architecturally and very much in the style of a typical um, board school um, of the period. The, uh, the houses for the pensioners in the Dell um, nearby uh, were built um, some years later in 1890. And then in 1899, the 17th century manor house um, nearby also was restored um, and extended as a reading room. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're not going to go into too much detail about every single <laughs> bit of, uh, of trouse. I suppose the, the, the general message is do if you're not familiar with it, and even if you are, actually, um, because, you know, you, with, with a, a bit of knowledge, a lot, a lot more sort of detail sort of jumps out at you, such as, um, you know, the, the specific names of all the different houses and the terraces which are, you know, painted on sort of timber signs and mounted on the walls and what have you. Um, and the, as I say, things like the railings, not just the school railings, but the sort of the posts around the common, they have a very um, distinctive look. And all of these little features um, and the simplicity of the general sort of character, really sort of good taste, you know, particularly of Russell Terrace, but extends really across the whole village. It's a really, really interesting um, little place with a lot of character. Um, and as I say, you know, you don't have to hurry on um, on the route that we're, um, we're sort of describing to you. Do, do take your time and have a, have a nice look. There's a really nice photograph, actually, Rachel, isn't there, of the common um, of employees, uh, which I think we're putting um, sort of uh, attached to the... Um, on the uh, on the on the walk of, of employees in 1912, um, female employees playing a game of uh, netball um, on the common. It really just goes to show that you know the place hasn't changed much at all, has it? No, it hasn't. Although I doubt you'll see groups of ladies in their huge long skirts and their hair and their long sleeves playing netball on the on the common. They're not the most sporting of outfits, but... Well, it was groups of ladies with their children, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. When we were there yeah. at the weekend. So, <laughs> as Chris said, you know, as we go along on this walk, whenever you want, just pause. Pause the podcast and just spend a bit of time looking and, and exploring. And, and Trous is a lovely place. We're right near Whittingham. Uh, broad and it's it's a great place to just have a wander around but at this point in our journey today we are going to head up to our sort of second um, second point of interest and if you have the common behind you you're going to head to your left now and head up the street and then join Brackendale so it's towards the church it is towards the church yeah so you pass St Andrew's Church on your left go over the bridge um, then you will pass Redwell um, on your right, which is uh, a bar, um, and you'll also see the abandoned Trous pumping station, which was built between 1865 and 1871, interestingly, by Um And it's completely abandoned now, and it's quite ghostly, but uh, that's just a, a small point of interest on your route. So um, you will head up, keep heading up, and you'll eventually get to a big sign that says BT Passive, um, and you'll, you'll be standing next to a roundabout. And this is the entrance to the old Carrow Works site. So you'll see when, when you walk up there, there's not a huge amount to see, unfortunately, anymore, because we've got a, a big industrial sort of um, entrance, uh, and it's gated off, so you can't actually see much of, of um, what we're going to talk about now. You, get, you can get glimpses. 
But we, we wandered up to Skate on Saturday and um, had a little look to see what we could see. And we were dubious, we looked a bit dubious, yeah. yeah. We were sort of, you know, squinting and looking over this fence. <laughs> and we were lucky enough to meet Julian Hanwell, who is one of the relief security guards who works at the old old Carrowworks site, which like I said is now BT Passive. And Julian was an absolute font of knowledge, wasn't he, Chris? He was brilliant. He was superb. Yes, Julian came out and, and introduced himself and was a superb chap and was just the just the person to uh, to speak to, wasn't he? Because he, he really uh, was, and he had he he showed us that he's got a fantastic knowledge about the Coleman's family and and the old Carrowworks site, which we'll talk a bit about now. Um, but he also wonderfully had a collection of historic books written by and some about the the Coleman family. So we've put a couple of photos that we took on the website. Um, he had some of their biographies and autobiographies, and brilliantly, one that he'd bought off eBay had some portrait photographs of James Stewart, who was uh, took over as director of Coleman's um, after the death of Jeremiah James, which we'll talk a bit about uh, later on, um, and his wife Laura Coleman, some some newspaper clippings about her and a, and a lovely inscription. So do have a look at that on on the blog. Um, so the reason we were we were sort of nosing around um, the BT Passive site is because this was where uh, Carrowworks, the, the, the Coleman's Mustard family um, factory, really started. So as I briefly mentioned, um, Jeremiah Coleman, who was the, the, the patriarch of the Coleman family who started the business, he had um, bought his first windmill in an area known as Pockthorpe and this windmill stood on land between um, Magdalen Road and Silver Road, um, which is about where St Olaf's Road um, later laid. Um, and he, he soon outgrew this, went to Stoke Holy Cross, soon outgrew that and came to Norwich. Um, and he had already by this point sort of created his very um, distinctive flavour of mustard. So he blended brown mustard with white mustard to create the sort of Coleman's English mustard flavour that we all know. Um, and even after he sort of moved into, into making starch and, and washing blue, the firm was always most famous for their, for their yellow mustard. And I think that's what everybody still knows Coleman's best mm. for today. So Jeremiah Coleman, he was married to um, Anne Theobald, and they had no children, but they did adopt his nephew, James Coleman, who later became a partner in the business in 1823. So when you see J and J Coleman, that was originally Jeremiah and James Coleman. And it gets a bit confusing because they, confusing, they yeah. like to reuse uh, the name Jeremiah and the name James. So um, it is slightly confusing, but we'll do our best to, to talk you through the family, family tree. And James was actually very hands-on um, at the Stoke Mill. So before they came to Carrowworks, he did some of the sifting and the mixing of the mustard flour. Um, and his wife Mary and his daughters also got involved and they labelled um, the casks. So uh, that's something we'll see throughout this as well. Women and children also worked um, for the Coleman uh, family. And during throughout this time, it was, of course, the Industrial Revolution, and uh, Jeremiah did install a steam engine at Stoke Mill in 1845 and built a new mill. But like I said, they were outgrowing the site rapidly, and it wasn't really ideal. There was no local railway station, 
um, not many local workers available and they had some issues with their lease as well. So in 1850, Jeremiah and his nephew James decided that they would move the business into Norwich. So they liked the site at Carrow, uh, they bought it from the Norfolk Railway Company, uh, it was perfect for them. There was loads of space to expand, they had access to the railway, the river, and there was a, a huge amount of local people looking for work at that time, as Chris mentioned earlier. Um, it wasn't immediate, this move, though. It did take about 12 years, and they didn't give up the lease in Stoke until 1862. Um, but during this period, the Carrow site was massively developed, so they put up a new mustard mill, starch and flour mills, engine sheds, etc., etc. Um, but also during this time, Jeremiah Coleman died in 1851, um, and this was followed by his nephew James Coleman, um, who died in 1854. So big period of change for the company. Um, and at this time, James's son, Jeremiah James Coleman, stepped up to become senior partner and, and manage the site. So that's Jeremiah Coleman's nephew, uh, sorry, great nephew, and James's son, Jeremiah James, the confusingly named. So as we'll see as, as we go forward, um, Jeremiah James became really the driving force behind the business's success and he is, you know, made a huge impact on the city and, and made Coleman's really the, the international brand that it, that it did become. Um, and one of the things that he really um, made great strides in was was the branding and the marketing of Coleman. So he introduced the Bull's Head logo in 1855 and it was also very important to him that people really knew that Coleman's was a very responsible, socially responsible company. So at this point we're, we're sort of stood by the gates of um, of the old Carrow Works and as we said you can't see a huge amount so we're going to head up the hill now um, along the A147 or, or Brackendale and as you get to the traffic lights you're going to turn right and head down King Street or, or the A147 still um, onto King Street and at this point we're going to try and see Carra House through the hedge. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not the most glamorous point of the, um, of the, of the tour this but um, just to sort of um, go back a little bit um, to, to, to talk to, to uh, thinking about the point we've just been at um, I think stood at those gates which is as Rachel said to all intents and purposes just a you know the opening to a modern industrial estate effectively it's very very difficult I think to paint in your mind's eye what it must have looked like and, and we were very much indebted to Julian actually to for, for sort of helping us um, with this as well as the interesting um, books and, and, and ephemera he brought out to show us um, he sort of gave us a little bit more of a potted history and gave us a bit of a hint in terms of the best uh, sort of uh, lookout positions to try and um, uh, get to, to try and really get a sense of the scale. I mean, it must have been enormous, you know, the, I mean, it was enormous. It was, it was, do, do we know how many acres it was? I think it was something like... I can't remember sort of, how many acres, but over, I mean... Oh, well over 50 There acres. were thousands yeah. and thousands of people working on the site, yeah. and it, it was a real complex, a real sort of... Effectively been described as its mm. own self-contained... Um, sort of town, effectively within within the city on mm. the on the river there. Um, I should mention also at this point, as well as a big thank you to Julian, if he's listening, I, I hope he is. Um, also, he mentioned that if you did want to venture in um, and, and probably um, have a have a look around, this is actually possible, isn't it, Rachel? I believe it is. Yes, you have to contact Unilever, 
Um, but they do do tours. Um, Chris and I are hoping to go on one at some point. But yes, uh, if you contact Unilever, I believe they will um, organise a tour for you yeah. of the old Carrawax site. Absolutely. So when you when when we've we, we've walked down um, uh, Brackendale and um, sort of going into towards King Street or into King Street, on the right hand side there's a gate where you can see Carrow um, Carrow House. Um, Carrow House. I don't think you can glimpse from the um, from from the uh, the main entrance. You can glimpse Carrow Abbey, I believe, just about. And and uh, at this point, I'm going to speak uh, briefly a little bit about Carrow House and Carrow Abbey because they were the main sort of um, residential buildings um, for the Coleman family um, at this point in time. Um, Carrow House, uh, which if you sort of sneak a peek through the through the gates, uh, where at this point that we're describing. Um, you can see a sort of a, a 60s um, building built adjoining it and built onto the side, um, which uh, speaks to the fact that uh, in, in recent years the building has had a history. Um, it was part of the county council. I believe social services um, were located, or part of social services, Norfolk County Council was located there up until um, fairly recently. Also, uh, the museum service, I believe, Rachel, is... Uh, is yeah, is, the, co- the costume and textiles department of, right. of museum service was based there for a time. Yeah, OK. But, um, but clearly there's, there's a part of the house which is um, much more uh, 19th century in style, and that's the original building, which was built, I believe, in 1861, um, there or thereabout. It gets a bit murky, to be perfectly honest with you. I appreciate that we should be telling you all this as experts, but... Um, it's not entirely clear because different sources say slightly different things and the, the sort of mixture between Carrow Abbey, as with the Colmans, as with the named, all these Jeremiah's and James and what have you, um, the, the sort of uh, the, the, the names get a bit mixed up. But basically Carrow Abbey is the older building um, which was built on the site. You can see ruins. Um, if you go on the Unilever tour, um, you'll see ruins um, on the site of a, uh, a medieval Priory. Um, so this is complicated by the fact that it's referred to as Carrow Abbey, but it was in fact a priory, um, which was in itself a Benedictine nunnery. Okay, so stick with me. Um, so the priory was founded in 1146, um, following a gift of land from King Stephen, apparently. Um, but the the prioress's house um, was uh, built in the early 16th century, and that is effectively what Carrow Abbey, the original part of Carrow Abbey is. So 16th century Prioress's, Prioress's house, and that was the only building not um, to fall into complete um, ruination following the dissolution of the monasteries um, in the time of King Henry VIII. So basically Henry VIII uh, presented it to Sir John Shelton. It passed through various um, various hands. Um, eventually um, it fell into the, the hands of the Coleman family. I believe they acquired um, they acquired the Carrow Abbey grounds um, and the, 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 uh, the building in 1878, but they'd been renting it before that, I believe, um, and they'd built Carrow House as their, um, as their main home um, in 1862. So I think there's, there's a bit of a sort of a... It's not easy to disentangle quite the chronology, but basically they'd been on the site from 1860s renting it. They'd built Carrow House in the 1862, um, Carrow House on King Street. Um, the house itself was extended in 1895. Um, there was a conservatory added 
um, and, a, and a garden which was made in 1908. Um, I believe uh, the, uh, the famous uh, Norwich architect uh, Boardman uh, was possibly uh, involved in its um, in its design, but there's some splendid architectural features. Apparently, if you're lucky enough to get on a tour and have a good look around, there's some Art Nouveau um, stained glass, um, some tessellated floors by Bolton and Paul, um, as well um, as well as some First and Second World War uh, memorials as well um, at Carrow House, um, dedicated to the Coleman's employees who served um, and lost their lives during um, bombing raids, which we'll speak about a little bit more uh, momentarily, Rachel. And there's, a, there's a couple of pictures, actually, that Chris has found that he's put on, on to the website. And there's a lovely one of um, Joan Boardman with her dog sat in Carra House. And it, it looks like an incredible room, really. It's full of plants. And it looks like possibly the um, the kind of glass conservatory greenhouse structure that was towards the back of the house. It's, it's a real shame, isn't it, um, that you can't see more of Carra House from the road because when you look at the old photographs, it's beautiful, isn't it? And it looks, this sort of glass greenhouse looks incredible. I think you, hopefully you'll get more of a sense of the, of the, of the uh, extent and the, uh, the impact as we continue along the walk. But it's worth just mentioning at this point, um, and this was a, a, a point of interest um, that Julian found um, very interesting as well, um, because um, he was obviously a, a keen uh, a bibliophile. Um, and um, we're fortunate enough, Rachel, aren't we, to have the Coleman uh, Library, the Coleman Collection, as part of Norfolk Heritage Centre's um, overall collection. Uh, and I mention this at this point because the Coleman Library uh, was originally housed, having been um, acquired and, uh, and built up um, by Jeremiah James. That's right, isn't it? It was Jeremiah James. It was yes. Jeremiah James, yes. yeah. Um, and he um, housed his, his enormous collection um, of books at Carrow Abbey. Um, and that's documented uh, the, the catalogue um, of the uh, writings of Norfolk men and of works relating to the county of Norfolk in the library of Mr. J.J. Coleman, um, published in 1896, refers to the library being at Carrow Abbey. But um, now, um, of course, it is, as I say, at the Heritage Centre. Um, it's a wonderful collection of books. There are about 5,000 um, volumes originally um, in the library, which was accumulated uh, by Jeremiah James um, and, and his son Russell. Um, but the library itself um, is not, not completely original, is it? No. Um, so it's about a, a few thousand volumes. And actually, if you want to get a sense of who Jeremiah James Coleman was as a man and what he was interested in, you know, he was a very sort of typical Victorian gentleman in, in some ways and his interest in sort of the natural world and, and scientific discovery and, and that kind of thing. But also the collection really reflects his interest in local politics, in genealogy, um, and also in um, non-conformist religions. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the Commons were actually were Baptists and um, their non-conformist Christian faith was hugely influential. Um, and Jeremiah James, he, he was a local Liberal MP uh, as well, so there's a lot about local politics. Yeah, so looking at the collection as a whole, it really tells you something about him uh, as a man. And he employed um, a, a couple of staff members to help him put this collection together. So he employed 
a curator from Norwich Castle um, and also another librarian to kind of curate this collection for him and, and make purchases. So there's some beautiful, really rare and uh, uh, books and, and also things that really predate uh, the Victorian era. But sadly, uh, in 1994, there was a, a huge fire um, that tore apart the the um, the Norwich Central Library, which is uh, was on the site where the forum is today, and um, about half of this collection was lost. So about two thousand volumes were lost through to uh, fire, smoke, or water damage. Um, and the librarians, after after this time, really put a lot of effort into trying to rebuild this collection. So they um, they put a public call out for donations and for people to um, source books that would replace the the volumes that were lost um and i think it's quite incredible really that they they managed to do this because the catalogue was lost so it really was rebuilt from sort of knowledge and and memory um which is quite incredible absolutely but as uh, as we say uh, although quite a lot was lost a significant significant proportion um does still remain that were the original books which were um collected um, by Jeremiah James and I should say at this point if you haven't at any point come in to Norfolk Heritage Centre on the second floor of the Norfolk and Norwich Millennium Library first of all why not um, but you should do so uh, particularly if you're interested in the Colmans um, you know you can come up give us a ring ahead or drop us a line drop us an email actually you don't even need to do that Rachel do you? hopefully when this goes out we might actually be um, non-bookable yes. in terms of our well, opening. Well, we're recording this during um, during COVID, so um, we at the moment we're offering a restricted service. But usually, and uh, in the future, we'll go back to we are just a drop-in drop-in site. So you can just turn up, have a look at our catalogue, speak to staff, um, and see whatever you you wish to see. You could see. I think we've got one photograph that we're sort of accompanying this, and we have one of our particular we have. treasures. So one of the treasures from the Coleman collection, which we often sort of refer to, is the Belay Denise Ende, and this was um, the first a copy of the first book printed in Norwich by Anthony de Salem, who was a a refugee, part of the strangers community, um, printed in 1568. So it's a, it's in, um, it's the translation of the title is Confession of the True Faith. So it's not something that you, you're going to be able to sit down and read, but it is beautiful to kind of hold, it's wonderful to hold in your hands uh, one of the first books ever printed in Norwich. It has a real, real history. Absolutely. So if you uh, where where are we now? We're, we're well, outside Carroll House. We are so sort of drifting down yeah. King Street, getting glimpses of Carroll House through various gates and and hedges. As you head down King Street, you'll reach Carrow Hill on your left, and at we need to cross the road um, and head up Carrow Hill until you reach what is now the Hugh J Boswell Building and sort of office complex, and this is the old Carrow School. Um, so, as we mentioned previously, the Coleman's had grown into this huge manufacturing complex and was a real major local employer. So there was thousands of people working on site, and this included women and children um, who were employed to make packaging for the for the products. And I think when you think about sort of labour and and manufacturing and industry in the Victorian era, it often brings to mind sort of exploitation, doesn't it? Mm. Exploitation of child labour of women dangerous working environments, long hours, low pay, that kind of thing. But actually, 
Jeremiah James Coleman was a very humane employer and he really showed a lot of care and respect towards his employees. And part of this was, was education. Education was really, really important to the family. Um, so in October 1857, a school was established for the children of employees and also for young employees in an upper room over a carpenter's shop in, on King Street. Um, and this school was run by a teacher called Anna Maria Cogman, who was known as Maria or Mariah, um, and she was from Caister St Edmund. And it's quite interesting to look at briefly at Anna Maria's life. She was unmarried, um, and she had been employed by her brother as a as a school governess to her brother's children, but her nephews and nieces um, were too old to require a governess. So. Anna Maria then became the schoolmistress at Stoke Holy Cross, so there was a school there for, for Coleman's employees, where Jeremiah, the, the original Jeremiah, had established a school for, for the children of his workforce. And Stoke is the next village to Caister, so, so the Cogman family and the Colmans probably would have already known each other. Um, Anna Maria then moved to Carrow, when the business moved to Carrow, and she's recorded in the 1861 census as living in Carrow Abbey with Jeremiah James and his wife, uh, Caroline Coleman. Um, and it's interesting that Anna Maria was unmarried because at this time teaching was really one of the very few career paths open to women, but female teachers had to remain unmarried uh, or they would lose their jobs. And of course they were paid significantly less than their male counterparts at this time, even by uh, very progressive employers like the Colmans. So in 1857, um, the school at King Street had around 22 pupils, but this grew really rapidly as the business grew rapidly. So by 1870, there was uh, about 300 pupils. Um, and the Colmans covered most of the costs for the schooling. So the children's parents had to pay a very small fee, but Colmans covered the bulk of the costs. And it was a condition of boys' employment um, for the company that they had to go to school for half a day a week um, in the company's time. And it wasn't unique to, to Jeremiah James Coleman, this idea of educating your workforce and, and their children. It was a, a belief held by many industrialists at this time that mass education was really important to the nation's ability to, to keep this lead in manufacture um, during the Victorian era. Um, and Jeremiah James, ordered that his school should teach the pupils reading, writing, spelling, arithmetic, grammar, geography, English history, drawing, and diligent and careful teaching of the sacred scriptures. So, as I said, they, they were sort of quickly outgrowing this original school um, on King Street. And, and in 1864, a purpose-built school was built on Carra Hill, and that's where we're standing now, the huge, huge Boswell uh, offices were at uh, the Carrow School. Um, and this was followed in 1871 and 1872 with, with the building of a second block of buildings um, nearby. Um, and Anna Maria continued to teach at the school. Uh, in 1871, um, a man called Francis Isaac Beals took over as headmaster and Anna Maria Cogman became the sewing instructor. 
Um, and Mr. Beals introduced all sorts of interesting new activities like gardening, um, physical care, games, domestic economy, um, and also things like wood carving, Venetian ironwork, clay modelling, carpentry, beekeeping, and leather work. So the the it's curriculum fantastic. was yeah really incredible actually the yeah. the diversity of subjects that that they were taught. Um, so in 1870 there was a a, a famous Education Act, which is when the state first sort of took responsibility for schooling and, and um, standardised schooling uh, across the board. And at this time, there was 324 children um, on the registers at Carrow School. Um, and by 1899, which is when the school was transferred to Norwich um, Education Authority, there were 600 children going there. So it grew from 22 to 600 um, in less than 50 years. Mm. And the school closed in 1919 and uh, any remaining pupils went on to the Lakenham Council School on City Road, um, which opened on Armistice Day in, in 1919 with members of the Coleman family present for the opening. So the buildings then uh, that were used for the school remained in use by the Coleman company for, for Sunday school and for adult education and also for like, entertainment and evening meetings and that kind of thing. Um, and then they were sold in the in the 60s, in the 1960s, and today um, it's used for offices and homes. Um, but when we were sort of exploring the site, I mean, you can't explore too much because it is it is private offices, but you can sort of walk up and down the, the front of the building. And there's a plaque, and it's it is slightly hidden by a lamppost. But do seek out this plaque. It's a small green circular plaque. It did take us a little while to find it, didn't it? Chris? Yeah, we, we we walked all the way up to the top of the hill. We did, like, like, like the grand old Duke of York. Yes, um, and, and, and we're again. You don't need to do. We've <laughs> we've done that, so you don't need to do that. Um, it's right by the school, right by a lamppost, and it says near this place on the 9th of July, uh, 1940, five employees of J and J Coleman Limited were killed by German bombs. Maud Ballam, 40, Maud Burrell, 37, Bertha Playford, 19, Gladys Sampson, 18, and Bessie Upton, 36, were the first civilian victims of Norwich to die from enemy action during the uh, Second World War. Um, and sadly, these, these women were actually walking home after a shift at, at Coleman's factory, were heading up um, Carrow Hill, and you can sort of imagine them, you know, heading up, just chatting, chit-chatting about the day. Um, and at five o'clock, 11 bombs were dropped, um, including several incendiaries onto Norwich. Um, part of a warehouse on Southhouse Road was destroyed and also um, explosives fell on the Bolton and Paul Riverside Works and also on Carrow Hill. And sadly, this, these women were the first, um, first in Norwich to die from enemy action. And eventually, um, more than 350 people died in Norwich during the course of the war and many obviously were, were badly wounded and, and lost their homes um, yeah so it's, it's, a, it's a solemn um, small memorial to these women who actually sadly um, were the first to die in, in the second world war Absolutely. We've, we've got a, a photograph um, as well, another photograph which shows some bomb damage <coughs> to a house um, on Carrow um, Carrow Hill. It's not from the. It's dated, so we, we we're fortunate enough to have the precise date. We don't always for for our photographs, but this one is not. So it, it was, uh, was taken on December the eleventh, 
1940 by George Swain. So it's not the particular raid, um, as, as Rachel said, that one was, uh, was, in, uh, was in July. Um, but it does, I think, um, you know, give you a little bit of a, an idea of the kind of um, kind of damage that uh, was. I mean, you know, we, we we can we can imagine those of us with any kind of empathy and imagination at all can imagine what it must be like. But actually, when you go on Pitcher Norfolk, our digitised um, site www.pitchernorfolk.gov.uk, um, you know, there we've got lots of photographs on there um, taken during the war showing. Um, quite a lot of uh, images similar to this one showing the damage which Norwich sustained and they do bring home to you um, just just how much Norwich was hit you know it's not in the I think in the national imagination perhaps Norwich doesn't sort of figure as largely as perhaps perhaps it should I mean it obviously wasn't as as hard hard hit as some other um, cities obviously you know London and Coventry and what have you but that's not to say that um, as, as Rachel said 350 people Killed and um, you know huge amount of damage, uh, literally and and of course psychologically must have been sustained. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so where are we? We're we're on Carrow Hill. We are, um, and we've we've learned a lot about. I think it's worth just at this point, um, you know, just really thinking about some of the extraordinary um, um, efforts the Coleman's went into in terms of their philanthropy and their concern for the conditions and the education. Um, of their workers, because you know, having just uh, walked past the uh, unfortunate, uh, unfortunately now no longer active uh, Carrow Works site, um, you know, was it ninety four, ninety five when the the factory finally stopped? Well, no, they were they were built, they were baking much mustard up until quite recently. Yeah, you know, two thousand. Yeah, so that was when yeah. it was taken over by Unilever. Yeah, but it, they moved it um, only a few years ago. You know, so this really is a story that's. A Norwich, the Norwich version of what was happening up and down the country, um, and I don't know. In twenty-first century Britain, I think it's just worth thinking about that. You know, are there any lessons for us there? I mean, to a to a to, a, to the modern mind, it seems extraordinary that, that an employer should have gone to such such lengths. You know, education, education, social things as well, wasn't it? I mean, mm. there were fates. I think we've got a photograph of a of a fate that was held. Um, on the occasion of was it one of the Coleman's uh, children's uh, majority twenty um, first birthday? I think it's is it this one here eighteen eighty two? I think it's the one of the eighteen eighty two photograph yeah. taken on the occasion of a fate to celebrate the coming age of Russell Russell J Coleman. Yeah, you've got a fantastic uh, fact, haven't you, Chris, about oh, the number of cups of tea? Number of cups of tea and coffee. Well, that's Nick Williams. I can't take <laughs> I can't take credit for that. But in his book, which I have to say we've made, we've made extensive yes, use we of. Have, we have. Um, uh, Nick Williams notes in in his Norwich City of Industries, um, eighteen sixty eight, affordable midday meals were introduced. Um, Ten thousand pints of tea and coffee sold in the first year, along with nearly fourteen thousand dinners. Goodness, so there you are. That's incredible. Presumably they had mustard yeah. with, with every one of them. Oh yeah, you'd hope so. <laughs> so at this point, we are going to slightly backtrack. So we're going to head back down Carrow Hill the way that you came, and then you're going to immediately cross the road, and you're going to enter um, what looks like a sort of you know residential development head down the hill towards a large black pipe that you can see oh, yes. uh, which as Julian uh, pointed out to us was is part of the original 
Carra Works. Mm. So it's now on the site where where these flats are. It's all been redeveloped and and then um, uh, with sort of modern flats. But this this black pipe it still exists. So if you walk past this pipe, um, you'll reach the river. And we discovered this on Saturday, didn't we, Chris? Mm. There's a little riverside walk. Um, if you head head left and head up the river, a little bench. There's a there's a yeah. lovely bench to sit on, and you can look down the river and see some of the old industrial buildings, some of the old um, Carrowworks buildings, and they've also helpfully put some um, information plaques along the walk. Yeah. So as you walk down, there's a bit of information about um, the Carrowworks site and what was on the point where, you, where you're now standing um, and also why the area is called uh, Paper Mill Yard as well. So um, we spent just a little bit of time wandering down there. It's a nice there. little site, isn't it? It nice is nice. Position. And also, at this, so uh, if you stood with this black pipe kind of behind you facing the river, that was the point where the original Carrow Bridge was mm. built. So we all know Carrow Bridge as being sort of further up the river. Um, actually, that that was wasn't opened until 1923. So the original Carrow Bridge stood at this point where you're standing now, and this linked uh, Carrow Hill with the northeastern end of of Carrow Road. And this bridge was in use, as I said, until the the new bridge was built in 1923. So have have a little meander um, along along the river there yeah. um, and just have a read of the information plaques and, and you can just see some of the old some of the buildings have been converted into housing and some of them have stood a bit further down the river um, and as you walk along the river you'll then take a footpath to your left um, and you'll come up again uh, onto King Street and at this point we've got a, a little bit of a walk until our next sort of point of interest so what you'll need to do here is uh, come back up to King Street and turn right and walk across the new Carrow Bridge, the one that, that was um, opened in 1923. And if you have a quick look over your shoulder behind you, you'll see um, two of the streets which are called Stuart Road and Allen Road. And again, this is a common, common family influence. Stuart Road was named after Jeremiah James's daughter and son-in-law uh, Laura and James Stewart and Allen Road was named after his son Alan Coleman so they're just behind you as, as you head over Carrow Bridge so immediately once you get over uh, Carrow Bridge you want to take the riverside footpath to your left and you're going to follow this round uh, past the riverside complex uh, past the residential areas past the, the, the um, pubs and restaurants and all of that until you reach uh, Norwich Station and Foundry Bridge and you want to cross over Foundry Bridge uh, at this point cross the road and you'll be opposite a pub called the Complete Angler enter the patio of the Complete Angler to the right of the pub which you are allowed to do which you are allowed to do yeah that anymore. is the yeah. riverside that uh, is the official riverside walk and follow signs for the riverside walk um, continue along the river and then you want to take the first left-hand turn, um, and it's it's not the, not the most obvious. So we have included a picture of Chris striding purposefully um, down this cut through, and you'll find yourself then on Recorder Road. You want to turn right on Recorder Road and follow it until you reach Stuart Court, and this is uh, another point of interest. Um, as we sort of briefly mentioned um 
Jeremiah James had a number of children. He had two sons and four daughters with his wife, Caroline. Um, And the daughters were Laura, Ethel, Helen and Florence. And these four women all became very, very accomplished women in local society um, in their own right. Um, And the the four sisters and also their cousins um, were very prominent uh, suffragists and also outspoken supporters of women's rights um, in Norwich. And they're fascinating women, actually, very, very inspiring, interesting women to, to learn more about. Laura was the eldest of the four sisters and she married a man called James Stewart in 1890 Um, and they were married at the Princes Street Congregational Chapel um, which in the Princes Street uh, Church was was their regular site of worship and this interestingly this chapel had been designed by the Norwich architect Edward Boardman um, whose son Edward Thomas Boardman also an architect went on to marry Laura's sister, Florence Esther Coleman. So the Colemans and the Boardmans were were well-connected families in Norwich. And James Stewart was a professor at Cambridge, um, interestingly a supporter of educational opportunities for women. He then became a Liberal MP uh, for Hackney and Hoxton in London. But when Jeremiah James Coleman died, in 1898, Stuart was in line to become the director of Coleman's. So, like Jeremiah James, Stuart was also a very enlightened chap. He was interested in education for women, as I mentioned, but he also supported female suffrage, um, as his wife did. And he also established the pension scheme for Coleman's employees. So he was he cared a lot about what happened to employees once they um, passed sort of working age um, and when we're at we're at Stuart Court at the moment which I'm sure you'll have guessed was named after um, James Stuart and it was actually named after him in remembrance um, by his wife Laura after his death in 1913 so at this point James and Laura were living in Carrow Abbey um, and he died in 1913 and two years later, the Commons commissioned uh, Boardman and Son architects to design the Stuart Court apartments, which we're standing in front of now. Um, so the, the sort of style of the apartments you'll see if, you, if you're facing them, they look kind of like a traditional almshouse. Um, and this is because James was really interested in um, looking after sort of former employees and, and the elderly. Um, and he was also interested in um, the, his- the the kind of Dutch links with Norwich and the history of the strangers coming to Norwich um, and that part of the city. So there's a real Dutch influence to the architecture of the buildings to kind of um, pay respect to his, his interests. Um, and these houses, uh, if, you, if you're looking through the photos actually on, on the website, there's a great photo of the 1912 floods and, and a, a boy on a horse and cart in Trouse. Terrible floods in the city in 1912, which left loads of people um, homeless. And the um, Stuart Court um, housing actually rehoused a lot of these people which had been um, left homeless by the floods in 1912. So 
We wander a little bit further down past Stuart Court at this time um, and head over the road and uh, you'll find the side entrance to the James Stuart Gardens, which we went into, didn't we, Chris, on uh, on Saturday, which is a real little hidden hidden treasure of Norwich. It is, it is, yeah. Um, so you can, you can access that, I mean, you know, just in your everyday life, just off Prince of Wales Road. Astonishingly, it's a nice little sort of... It's an oasis. secluded little yes oasis that's a word yeah. I was, a yeah. word I was looking for a little <laughs> oasis um, you know if, if Prince of Wales is becoming too much which it sometimes does you can um, on your way home from work or whatever disappear off to the left where about is where where KFC used to be isn't it it is where yeah. KFC Basically, used to be that's, yeah. that's what, these are my reference points yeah. <laughs> um, which also I think was where um, not in KFC obviously but in the where it was before was where the uh, Beatles played wasn't it in Norwich was, was yeah, indeed and the point. Regent Theatre was is that yes was, yeah. which you can see evidence of um, as you exit the James Stewart Gardens um, but yeah the James Stewart Gardens were designed again by Boardman and Sons and they were um, opened in 1922 as another yet another memorial to James Stewart um, in accordance with the will of Laura so Laura sadly died in 1920 and uh, this garden was, was opened uh, as, as another memorial. Um, and Laura lived, as I said, until, until 1920. She's a really interesting woman in her own right. And as you, as you sort of enter the, the um, gardens through the side gate, you, we spotted a, an original, original feature, didn't we? A Barnard's Limited uh, lock on the gate, on the ironworks of the gate. Mm. So, so spot that. Um, and you, as you could sort of, you know, have a stroll through the park. The main exit or entrance to the park, there's a couple of plaques on the wall, and one of them says, "The building of this gateway, delayed by the Great War, was completed in 1922 under a bequest of Laura Elizabeth Stewart, OBE, a member of the Norwich City Council and the first woman uh, justice for the peace appointed for the city." So just a you know a low-key sort of um plaque in a memorial named after her husband uh, actually tells you quite a quite a great deal about what laura was like in her own right so she was the first female magistrate um in norwich um she'd been a city councillor she was also president of the norwich branch of the national union for women's suffrage societies and she was also a writer, so she wrote a biography of her mother's life. Um, and her mother, uh, Caroline, had been really central, actually, to the family's success and popularity. And she's not always remembered in quite the same way as, as Jeremiah James. Um, she was apparently a very likeable woman, very uh, public-minded, and influenced the, the direction of the business and of the decision-making of Jeremiah James a great deal. So Laura had uh, had written this biography of her mother's life. So do spend a bit of time um, looking at this grand entrance, this this gateway to the James Stewart Garden, and mm. and um, reflect a bit on the life of Laura Stewart as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, it's a nice little spot for a pause as well if you happen to have a picnic or something like that. Just, uh, but uh, yeah, we I think the 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 uh, the grand entrance with the um, with the armorial sort of. Uh, the heraldry um, was one of a number of uh, uh, sort of motto searches we did, wasn't it? What, what was the motto for that one? It was, and do you know what? I can't remember. We'll have, we'll have to look it up. It's, it's got the Stuart family um, motto 
in Latin written on the on the um, Herald, and we'll look it up and put it on the website. We so I, I can't remember what it was, but actually that's reminded me. You know, quickly going back to Caro School, there's also a Latin motto written on the wall there, um, which reads. Satsito uh, si sat bene, which is quick enough if well enough, um, which was the motto for Caro School. Um, but yeah, we'll have to look up the, the Stuart family motto, Absolutely. won't we, Chris? Um, yeah, I, I think that motto actually does, you know, sum up a lot about the the, the impact of the of, of the Colmans, you know, and the, this philanthropy. I mean, you know, it's, you can label this point, I suppose. Um, and they weren't the only ones; they were different. Um, different families, different industrialists um, up and down the country um, doing similar similar things. Um, people like uh, Sir Robert Owen, the, the founder of the new, new Lanark, um, and uh, the Lever Brothers at Port Sunlight, uh, Sir Titus Salt at Saltaire, the Bournevilles, of course, and Cadbury's and what have you. Um, but, you know, I think it's a testament to the to, the, to their character that, you know, these things are all still here, aren't they? They're still here to be enjoyed. There's the gardens. Um, obviously, if you're lucky enough to find yourselves in one of the um, houses and what have you. Um, but, you know, the, the gardens are there for anyone to enjoy. Suckling House, which we're going yes, um, to talk about in a moment, is still there. I've quickly looked up the, um, oh, yes. the Stuart clan crest. It is, um, and excuse my Latin pronunciation, Vericit Volner Virtus. Courage grows strong at a wound. That's it. I thought there was a wound involved. Yeah. I remember so that. That's the, the motto for the Stuart clan. So, as, as Chris said, we're going to now leave the oasis of the James Stuart Garden and um, head out the main entrance gate onto St Faith's Lane. So you're going to turn right at this point. Um, do, do take note of the, um, what was it, the... Uh, the old yeah. horse market. The old horse market, but yeah. the unusual appendage... Oh, yes. ...of yes. the Regent... Yes, on the Regent Theatre, there, there is some sort of um, extension to the building which says the, the Regent Theatre on it, which yeah. we... we um, took it's an interesting of. architectural feature. It is. Yeah. Um, yes, so turn right, head down St Face Lane, um, and turn right again onto a footpath. So you'll find this footpath opposite number 30, and there is a plaque uh, talking about the old horse market that was on this site. Um so head down this footpath, follow it through. It becomes uh, something called Horse Fair Loke, and then you'll reach Ferry Lane. Um, and if you look to your right at this point, you will catch a glance of Pulls Ferry. Um, but we're going to go left and head onto Cathedral Close and past the cathedral. So this is one of my absolute favourite parts of the city to walk through. So this is quite a treat to, to just take a stroll through the cathedral grounds, past the cathedral, and you want to exit the cathedral grounds via the Ethelbert Gate. So if you've got the cathedral behind you, that's the gate to your left. Um, and you'll find yourself on Queen Street. So you want to keep going, keep heading up Queen Street in a straight line. You'll cross the road, you'll go past various bars and, and pubs. And um, then you'll meet Redwell Street. So you'll, you'll reach the road, there's some traffic lights. If you cross the road there, turn right head down Redwell Street which becomes St Andrew Street and then you will reach Cinema City which is our, our sort of final um, place of contemplation on this walk um, and Cinema City you'll see um, 
by the main entrance is is a lovely sort of decorative plaque that says Suckling House and Stuart Hall. Um, and on the building on the right, if you look up, there's a there's a um, sort of memorial stone that says Suckling House as well. So Suckling House, um, as as I've mentioned, Laura Coleman, the eldest of, of the four daughters, died in 1920. And two of her younger sisters, Ethel and Helen, bought Suckling House as a memorial to Laura. And it was one of the oldest surviving merchant houses in the city. Um, but by 1920, it was really falling into a state of disrepair. And there's some photographs um, we've uploaded of, of how it looked at that time. And it, and it really um, wasn't in great shape. So again, they employed their brother-in-law, Edward Boardman, to renovate the building. Um, and he added the brick building to the east side of Suckling House in 1925 and named it Stuart Hall after Laura Stewart. Um, Stuart Hall, when it was opened, it could hold uh, about 450 people and they equipped it with a cinema projector and a screen. Um, and Ethel and Helen, once it was all um, renovated, presented Suckling House and Stuart Hall to the city of Norwich to be used for the advancement of education in its widest and most comprehensive sense, which was a lovely memorial to their elder sister. Um, but Ethel and, he and Helen were really interesting women in their own right. So um, previously in her, in her life, Ethel was a great supporter of women's suffrage, like her sisters. She strongly believed that women should take a very active part in public life. Um, but she had very strong Christian beliefs as well. So she disagreed with the violent protest tactics of the suffragettes. So she was a, a suffragist. Um, she became a director of the Missionary Society. Uh, before becoming one of the first ever women deacons uh, at Princess Street United Reformed Church. Um, and she was the first women deacon in any congregational church. Um, and shortly after this time, she joined the Labour Party uh, after the First World War. And she was really, she was known for being very level-headed, having a quiet intelligence and, and a sense of humour. So she was very, very well-liked and respected in, in Norwich public life. Um, and actually last year, between, between lockdowns in 2020, we were invited to the Princess Street United Reformed Church, which sadly was closing. Um, and they had found some very special books um, just sort of lurking on the bookshelf in the church. Um, and these included a Bible which was owned by Ethel Coleman herself, um, which included her handwritten annotations. Um, so... We assume this was sort of her, her reference Bible while she was one of the one of the uh, deacons at the church, and it's absolutely chock full of her little notes and annotations and scribbles, and it's just a wonderful thing. Um, and also we found a, a we were given a family Bible, which was owned by Laura Stewart and, and James Stewart, and the, after Laura's death, this was gifted by Ethel and Helen to Trous Congregational Church. So we're really lucky to have this wonderful collection of books um, donated to us last year. But you're probably thinking, um, you know, Ethel Coleman, you've heard that name before, and that is because she was the first uh, female Lord Mayor in England. So the first ever, interestingly, they called them Lady Lord Mayors rather than Mayoresses. And she was the first Lady Lord Mayor in England. And um, the local historian Philida Scrivens has written a fantastic book about the Lady Lord Mayors of Norwich. 
and her chapter on Ethel's great. It really gives you an idea of, of what her character was and, and what she was like as a woman. And her younger sister, Helen, served as her Lady Mayoress. Um, and interestingly, again, you know, thinking back to old Anna Maria Cogman, neither Ethel or Helen married, and instead they chose to remain unmarried, work, and throw themselves into civic life and philan—I can never say this—philanthropic work um, in the city and sort of dedicate their, their lives to, to the city, which I think is is quite interesting that at that time, women often found themselves faced with the choice of marriage and domestic life or public service and, and work. Um, and Ethel and Helen chose the latter. And 1923 was the year when, when Ethel was sworn in as, as the First Lady Lord Mayor, which was a great year for women in Norwich because it was the year that Dorothy Dewson was elected as one of the first female Labour MPs as well. And um, I think, you know, if I, if I could time travel, I'd love to go back and meet Dorothy Dewson and Ethel Coleman. I think they'd be uh, incredibly inspiring women. Absolutely. Brilliant. Okay, so if we uh, have a have a, a bit of a stand and uh, doff our uh, metaphorical cap to uh, to uh, Laura Stewart and Ethel Coleman and the and Helen and the, the wonderful women um, of the Coleman family and the extended family, we then um, basically we just we're almost done, I think, aren't we? We so are. We thought we you know this could be a good point because there's quite a lot of benches and cafes and places to kind of stop here. So we thought this would be a good point to stop. Um, and but we can sort of reflect on some of the other work that the the Coma family did from this point. So um, the castle is in view. The castle is in view. Yes. Yeah. If you if you look uh, if you stand um, to the right of Cinema City, you can see Norwich Castle. And um, I'm going to have to say this word again. Uh, the the philanthropic work of of the Colmans extended to Norwich Castle. Um, after his death in 1898, Jeremiah James um, left. Uh, lots of pictures from his large personal art collection to the Norwich Castle Museum in his will um, but in 1946 his son Russell who um, if you think back to Russell Terrace in, in Trous, Russell Coleman bequeathed thousands of prints and pictures to the Castle Museum and also a huge amount of money as well and this allowed them to create the two uh, new galleries to display these wonderful um, pictures, the Coleman Galleries. Um, and because of his donation, the Coleman Art Galleries now house the world's largest public collection of works by the Norwich School of Artists. So this was particularly what Russell Coleman was interested in. And the Norwich School was the first regional society of artists established in England, um, which included artists like John Crome and John Selcottman, and Joseph Stannard and this collection had been housed by Russell at his home at the Crown uh, Crown Point Estate in Trouse until he um, bequeathed it to Norwich Castle and he said that he was he made this gift um, when he when he was writing his will he wrote a, an accompanying letter um, that said he was making this gift in token of his affection for the city of his birth and in honour of the unfailing courtesy and kindness he received from his fellow citizens. And the prin Princess Elizabeth, as she was then, opened the galleries on June the 18th, 1951, as part of the Festival of Britain. And they're still there, aren't they, Chris? You can still have a wander around the Common Art as, Galleries. As we speak, there is a, uh, a John Chrome exhibition on, which I, I imagine will, will not be open when, when this goes out, but uh, that features uh, one 
many of the paintings uh, concerned, including one that shows Carrow Abbey, I believe, in the um, in the early part oh, of the nineteenth century when it was uh, when it was in in a rather shabby condition before the Colmans got hold of it and uh, sort of uh, renovated it and what what have you. So I think at that point. Um, that was that was that's quite an epic, wasn't it? Well, it what was, are we? yeah, yeah. So. yeah. So hopefully, hopefully you've enjoyed that that meander from Trous up into um, up into the city centre. Um, thank you for for coming with us. Um, and as we said at the beginning and throughout, we work at Norwich uh, Norfolk Heritage Centre in Norwich. Absolutely. So do come and see us. Do send us an email yeah. um, to heritagecentre at norfolk.gov.uk if you've got any questions or anything you'd like to share with us or absolutely um you know anything about the coleman family that you found particularly interesting do come and see the coleman collection as well um please just send us an email or pop by um when restrictions have lifted and we hope you've enjoyed this this um stroll with us today absolutely